Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences and where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today, I'm joined by George Chaco of the University of Illinois and Steve Gallo of AIBS. They're going to be talking about communities or groupings of scientists as demonstrated in citation clusters. Uh, they'll describe that concept more fully and much better than I would. Uh, but the work here rests on analyzing the patterns that appear when you look at which scientific articles cite which other scientific articles. And you can learn quite a bit about science from that, but I'll let them describe that. So let's go straight to the interview. George and Steve, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Hi, James. Uh, this is George from Champaign, Illinois. Glad to be here. Okay, great. So uh, today we're going to be talking about communities of scientists and particularly in the form of clusters. Uh, but I hope you could just start us off a little bit by talking about, you know, kind of what these communities are that you're ultimately trying to interrogate and look at. So this is George. Um, my interest in this started from reading the scientometrics literature where, you know, a number of people observed that scientists tend to organize into social groups. And so a community of scientists uh, has been defined in different ways, but the, I think the most common, um, commonly sort of encountered description is where you have a set of people who share a common set of beliefs and often work on the same set of problems. Okay, and in your work, those are described as clusters. Um, before we go any further into you know this specific effort, could you tell us a little bit about that field in general for those of us who are less familiar with it? Right, so, so clustering is used in almost everything. You know, um, Just look at big tech and everyone talks about clustering. The, there's a very large um, sort of community in the computer science department uh, field, and then the scientometrics people have used clustering. In particular, Kevin Boyack and Dick Clavins and, uh, have done a number of seminal, uh, written a number of seminal papers, but also others like Ludo Waltman uh, at uh, Leiden University. So um, they, their body of work is much more substantial than ours. I think we have a more specific interest that clearly overlaps with theirs. And, uh, and we're fortunate to be able to take advantage of all the work of the people who preceded us. Okay, great. And so I, I think that, you know, gives us a little bit of a background to sort of understand this. And how in this article in particular, were you looking at that concept? You know, how do you, how do you evaluate a community? So I, I came to this problem from the, from the bibliometrics field, uh, which is you know, measuring how scientific documents connect with each other, in, usually by citation. And it's a very effective way of also realizing that the people who write the papers are often in the same community. So we, we tried to use the linkages between papers to identify communities. Um, and, and, and I was fortunate enough to have access to a very large uh, bibliographic database, the Scopus database. So it was fairly easy to do, to look at these problems from a large scale, on a very large scale, starting with 25 million publications of radio. That's an enormous skill. So just to make sure that, you know, we all understand, it's the idea of, you know, let's say the three of us were, um, you know, all scientists working in a field and we were writing papers. So my paper might refer to, you know, um, Steve's paper, which might refer to George's paper, and there would be linkages between them. And, you know, that would sort of give an indication that we were, in some sense, a research community. Yes, that's... Uh, it's an incomplete definition, 
but the data are good enough to be able to make these measurements. So um, a criticism of bibliometrics is that it's often overused to try and answer questions it's not really qualified to do, but it's a very, very useful um, sort of set of uh, tools that you can use to at least scratch the surface of a scientific organization. And so, you know, you've got this enormous, you know, database um, that you're able to look at. How do you start interrogating that? How do you look for communities within it? Obviously, with 25 million uh, publications, you're not going to do this in any sort of manual way. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, so obviously, we didn't try and map all 25 million, although there are people who sort of work at that scale. We focused in an area of biology that I was fairly confident of. So uh, when I when, when I was able to you know get answers back, uh, they would tell me whether I was in, in the right ballpark or not. And that's where Steve and Mariam uh, particularly came in because they served as an independent evaluation source of the communities that we would construct and offer up to them for evaluation. Say, are these real or not? So you've got this, you know, enormous database of 25 million records. And, you know, how do you begin to um, glean any information from that? Right. So the way we approached this was to look at publications in the field of immunology, an area that I have some knowledge of. So we, so we used the high-level subject classification of immunology and pulled all papers across a 10-year span. And then we used our citation database to identify all the papers that cite those papers and all the papers that are cited by these immunology papers. So that ended up being about two and a half million publications. Okay, so now you represent them as a graph uh, where you have nodes, where each node is a document and edges where each edge is a citation. So you have a set of connected papers. And then you, uh, you test out different clustering algorithms, which will uh, look for areas in the graph where the you know the number of edges, the density of edges is high, and 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 those are essentially clusters. And you can do this in different ways. And we had our favorite uh, you know sort of clustering algorithm, but we just actually tried out three different algorithms, and ended up using a, uh, two of them in combination to identify clusters that we would then provide to Steve and Mariam who would return uh, the evaluations of the clusters and they were trying to ask are these clusters well themed so the reason this is important is because the subject level classification is derived from the journal that a paper is published in very, very often so if you have a general purpose journal the subject could be anything okay so in fact the second argument to be made is that the actual structure of science uh, close to the leading edge spills across disciplines. And, and so that's why we wanted the papers that actually cited our core set of papers. And, and so these little clusters represent interdisciplinary in some cases and intradisciplinary in other cases, uh, areas of focus by investigators. And we and, and a lot of the ideas came from a paper in 1966 by Derek De Price and Donald D. Beaver, who looked at an interest group that was created by NIH that studied oxidative phosphorylation, and they, they had a mailing list that they would send letters to each other uh, about each other's findings. And this acted as a proxy for the modern citation graph. Because in those days, journal papers took a long time to get around uh, and to get published. 
and 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 they describe certain features of the single community that they describe uh, studied and we wanted to say uh, uh, you know we said look since 1966 the scientific community is hugely expanded and it's unreasonable to expect that all communities behave the same they may have certain things in character uh, in common but uh, but they're likely to be very different because the different scale that which science is conducted today so we were particularly interested in small communities which is generally agreed uh, upon that uh, these are the site of innovation and once they become larger then they are just split into a new small communities or they tend to be accumulate dogma and uh, and exhibit less innovation that's a long answer sorry <laughs> No, no, not at all. Um, so I want to get in a moment, get into, you know, what the implications of these communities are uh, for the conduct of science, the funding of science, etc. Um, but before we do that, you know, Steve, could you tell me a little bit about what you're doing when you're examining these communities, you're ground truthing these clusters? The algorithm has given you some piece of information, some, you know, notion that these scientists are linked in some way. How do you go through then and, and determine whether that's a, an actual meaningful thing or whether that's you know merely some happenstance or something? Right. So thanks, James. I mean, uh, that's true. We uh, we kind of looked at the relatedness of these clusters to kind of um, you know uh, validate some of the algorithmic approaches that George was using, and um, he would give us a, a large um, clusters that they would then kind of. Um, Evaluate based on a, a scale uh, how how appropriately you know related they were based on the, the titles and um, uh, in the abstracts to trying to get a sense of uh, um, how much, how similar those bits of research are and actually that's something that uh, uh, at AIBS one of the things that we do as you know is is uh, we conduct peer review for uh, various uh, external funding entities. And uh, one of the things that we do is is to try and uh, uh, aggregate some proposals into specific panels and also uh, gather sets of scientists to review those proposals. So a lot of it is about uh, aggregation and relatedness of, of proposals and, and matching of, of scientific uh, expertise compared to the proposals. Sorry, George George has his hand up. You can't see yeah. that. Go no, ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm really glad you brought that up, Steve, because <laughs> it turns out that what uh, scientific review administrators do, uh, people like Steve and people like, the, you know, I was once uh, in that job too, is that you get a pile of documents and you first sort them into big clusters and they take those big clusters and sort them into smaller clusters. So yeah. That's exactly what we do. Mm. And then you try and match people to those clusters for their expertise uh, for one reason or another. And um, so it turns out that the practice of peer review, you know, involves humans uh, clustering documents yeah. and uh, and therefore uh, our brains are trained to recognize good clusters uh, whether whether we're good at it or not is, is probably debatable but but it, it's a it's an independent way of, of you know clustering a set of documents what humans aren't very good at is being scalable so they couldn't do 25 million documents but machines can That's but you true. can then sample the clusters generated by the machines give them back to the humans and say Right. Are these good clusters? So that's exactly what we were doing. And also, I'd say the advantage too of humans is is the context. You can actually read the the abstract and really get a sense of what the research really is and whether it does in fact overlap with other research, uh, which is something that algorithms uh, try to do. But uh, yeah, so yeah. both have an advantage. <laughs> I'll add that 
the reason we use citations, first of all, I love citations, but the reason we use citations is that every citation represents a human interpreting another document in context and saying, yes, this document is relevant to what I'm studying. That's the basis on which references are cited in the paper. So, so going, that, that just goes back to your point about context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so you know, in a sense, you're you know, Steve, you're evaluating the clusters um, and seeing you know, kind of like how real these communities are. Can you give us an example of you know what a community or what a cluster would look like if it weren't representing something real? You know, how how could this be sort of a trivial association that the algorithm has spit out that's not pointing to something that's you know a real community in a meaningful way? Right. So that was built into the um, pr- protocol when we first uh, started this experiment. We also randomized, um, we created some random clusters, and we evaluated them um, using a mathematical um, sort of cluster quality algorithm, you know, test, um, uh, and compared them to the true clusters, and there was a substantial difference between the two, so that was okay. But we also gave Steve and Mariam some randomized clusters, and they correctly identified them without being, without being told that these were randomized. So they could clearly distinguish between Although the numbers are small, they could clearly distinguish between a cluster that was based on citation and a cluster that was based on randomized citations. Yeah. I'd throw out too that um, you know uh, an example of maybe something that might pop up. That uh, uh, actually, I think George, you have uh, a way of describing this already. But uh, there are some papers that uh, push forth a method. And the method may touch a lot of different clusters. And that may be kind of uh, a situation where a lot of people are citing one paper, but it, they're not actually a cluster of scientists working on a similar problem. It's really uh, a method that's touched a lot of different. But that's also t- important to, I think, spotlight and, and look at because uh, it just shows you the, the breadth of, of those types of discoveries and how, how they can influence you know, large swaths of the scientific community. Absolutely. I mean, you can cluster along different axes, and we d- I think we discovered all of these. And, and Steve, I'm going to press you for a made-up example uh, of that. So, you know, what, what would one such discovery possibly be, you know? Um... Uh, well, something like PCR or something sure. like that, a polymerase chain reaction that uh, this is, I mean, I'm old, so that's, uh, for me, that was like, oh, uh, high innovation and you know I've been out of the lab for years so obviously there's much more interesting things even CRISPR is is old relatively speaking but uh, um, but other things like that are, are examples that uh, once it was created it was like a, a bomb and, and many many different communities were uh, able to use that technology to move things forward. Right and, and you you would um, expect that something like PCR we, we, didn't, we didn't see the PCR paper but uh, it may have been there somewhere, but um, has such a lot, uh, has so much influence that the papers that cited form clusters unto themselves. And, and remember, we were looking at small clusters. So PCR has been cited so many times that if you put all of them in one cluster, it would have been impossible for Steve and Martin to evaluate it. Right, that makes sense. So you've got you know this technique for identifying clusters, um, you know, pulled from the citation behaviors of. Um, you know, various authors and it... Wait, wait, we're building clusters, okay? I mean, so this is, these are things that we create. They're completely artificial, virtual cl- clusters, right? And then we're trying to ask whether they mean anything to humans. Okay, and so if you, as you identify if they mean something to humans, if they, these do represent or, you know, find a parallel within, um, you know, human communities of practice, 
what are the implications of that? You know, what what does that information allow you to do? So you've got this, you have an ability to, you know, identify, um, you know, communities or something that correlates with communities. Um, how can you then, you know, leverage that to, for an end or, you know, drive future insights? Right. So, I mean, I'm going to go back to the Price and Beaver paper of 1966, the, the important discoveries they made. Um, and, and it's an absolutely brilliant paper that, you know, everyone should read, in my opinion. That you had a, they had, they looked at a cluster, they used the same technique, they, I mean, it was their technique, they, they took the papers that were connected effectively by citation and identified all the authors of those papers. And they, uh, it was, I think it was about 500 authors in total over a five-year period. Um, and they, they made the point that you had a large, the nature of collaboration, because writing a paper involves collaboration, and then citation is an implicit form of collaboration too within a community, um, is that you have a few people who are well represented in many of the papers, and then many people who have only one paper, and they form a trans population. So you have a sense of organization around a few core figures, the control figures are a cluster and then a large transient population. And the nature of collaboration that they refer to is that, you know, these transient figures may end up in other clusters and they move from cluster to cluster over time. And there are a few people who's, who's, who remain within the cluster for a long, longer period of time. All this is, makes sense, but it's a, you remember clustering itself is kind of artificial. So, you know, if we use two different algorithms, uh, the clusters don't always look the same. So look, in, in science today, you have, um, you know, a highly skilled workforce and, and, uh, and understanding the dynamics of how people move from problem to problem and how long it takes from, the, uh, from when they first graduated to where they ended up uh, across that time. Can, uh, these are the kinds of questions that, uh, uh, that uh, answers to communities can sort of partial, partially give you uh, that's one part of it. The other part is that, you know, the reason you have so much science is that most of it is publicly funded. So if the government invests uh, taxpayer money in an area of science, uh, it's a good idea, and I'm sure that, you know, to think long and hard about the availability of labor, uh, highly skilled labor for that project. And then what you're going to do with these people in the project and the funding dies, you know, because they're important contributors to an enterprise. So it, um, this kind of information, at least we, we think will strongly inform you know, policy formulation and can also be used for evaluation of the effects of policy uh, because the policy sort of uh, uh, identifies some kind of goal and then the funding agency operationalizes it by creating solicitations. People apply for those grants, they get the grants, then they perform the research, and then years later you begin to see what happens. And so you want to go back uh, in the modern time where you have a giant size scientific enterprise with competing, uh, uh, where everyone's competing for resources, uh, for limited resources, and you want to, uh, and it's very, uh, not only is it interesting, it's actually useful to know how people move and how scientists organize in the modern scientific enterprise. And, so, so two things, how do they organize and then what are the dynamics of this organization? I would even say, you know, following up on that, yeah, I mean, questions that I have are, are things like, you know, 
we had discussed this before, you know, does research funding, uh, how, how does it affect, as you kind of describe uh, um, these clusters and uh, is it an artificial uh, uh, change in the evolution of natural um, inquiry in the sense that, I mean, if these people were left supposedly, let's say you just gave them money without any specific funding announcement that, let's say, pushed people towards a particular disease, and they were just curiosity driven, would they come up with different studies than they would if, if um, uh, you know, as opposed to how the funding system is now? Uh, also, you know, I think uh, how, I, I mean, I, this is beyond the work that we've done, but I think in the future, I think it would be very interesting to look at uh, um, the effect of peer review as a gatekeeping function and how that uh, affects a lot of these uh, clusters and uh, does it shape the evolution of these things over time and things. So I think there's a lot of interesting work that could come out of this uh, in the future. To, to the extent that you can get complete peer re records, yeah. I mean, you want, you'd want to know uh, do communities tend to fund the, their, own, their own people or, or not? Yeah. yeah. So these tools can also uh, get at uh, the effectiveness of peer review. Um, uh, yeah. Now, the effectiveness is again is is an is a standard. It's not a pure value in itself. So the effectiveness of peer review would be: does it generate the results that you want, and 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 the differences of opinion on that. Sure. What the right results are. Yeah. But in terms of you know, people have a lot of interest these days, and in, in this peer review fair. And uh, um, this may be a way to, to look at potential biases and conflicts of interests and, and also to see whether, you know, we're getting the right people on board, uh, you know, and maybe, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, I'll stop. I, I, I mean, remember, machines can handle giant amounts of data and reduce them to small chunks of information that experts should then review. Yeah. So the... the Clustering is not going to substitute for expert judgment. It's just sure. going to assist expert judgment. Absolutely. And we still think that expert judgment is the most important, is the gold standard. Agreed. But it's one of those cases in which, you know, you can aid and abet the expert judgment by providing a little bit of data for context as well. A lot more than a little bit, I'd say. Yeah, it sounds like a lot more, a lot more yeah. than a little bit of data. Um, can we dig in just a little bit into, you know, um, a potential, you know, again, made up case study or made up example of if you were, if you, you know, had this information about, um, let's say that, you know, a, a funding initiative, and then you want, and then you looked at after the fact, um, you know, the, the ways that communities were formed, um, getting the notion via looking at the clusters that were related to that funding. You know, what kinds of things would you be looking for? What kinds of things might you see? What might you want to see? What might you not want to see if you were a funder? What, what sort of you know, thing would be a, a bad outcome versus a good outcome, um, potentially? And recognizing, of course, that this is all made up, um, per my request. So that's a question that we're interested in. So the, the way I'd answer it is by going back to human experts first. So when you have a solicitation, it's typically crafted by some set of program officers in a funding agency. And they have a pretty good idea of the community that they're targeting uh, and expectations of who would apply and expectations of who might get funded. And then the, the publications come out and then we use them uh, based on citation and 
and we build clusters from them and we can return this information back to the program staff um, in theory at least no one's asked for it yet um, and say here's what you funded by looking at the funding acknowledgements of those publications you can you can you can identify the communities that those publications end up in so if you have a methods paper, say in some engineering field, and you suddenly find a bunch of bi biology people discovering that it, this technique is useful, um, you're having unexpected, but possibly beneficial effects that you want to be aware of. So the next time you craft a program announcement, you can anticipate these good collateral benefits or redesign your program to try and avoid them if, if you don't think they're useful. Okay, that's interesting. So that would be a case in which, you know, um, otherwise, without looking at this sort of information, you wouldn't get there because you would simply have no idea that this additional collaboration had occurred. You could get there, but but uh, think about the process, uh, how manual it is. Right? So I'm program officer X has a portfolio of 500 different grants at NIHM, or 400 grants. And, uh, and I see papers coming in every, every week or every month. And I say, okay, this looks relevant, this one may not. But um, I, haven't, I don't have the time to say who's it affecting, who's citing these papers. But the, uh, but, and that's what clustering does. It sort of reduces this very large amount of data to something that's more useful. And that uh, this uh, program officer can then accept or reject as being relevant to his or her portfolio. Okay, great. So I, th I think that covers a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering now, you know, what's next for this area of research and what's next for the collaboration with AIBS? Um, you know, what kinds of questions will you be looking at? And, um, you know, what kinds of things should we be on the lookout for going forward? Okay, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> we're both looking at each other, wondering what the other one's going uh, to answer. <laughs> well, we're fortunate in having a collaboration that's, um, you know, come to be over uh, us knowing each other for several years um, in our previous profession, in my pre previous professional life, and, and sharing common scientific interests that are different enough that the collaboration sort of is worth it and is not just duplicating effort. Um, Steve made this important point about doing, pointing some of these studies at the peer review network that acts as an essential filter for funding. And I think that's very, very interesting. I'm more interested in the methodology. And, and um, so I'm fortunate where I am to have two very strong technical collaborators um, who will bring the kind of mathematical rigor that I'm incapable of to our future studies. So we have another uh, proposal um, you know, that will be reviewed and hopefully it will get at least uh, some favorable comments uh, where we try and uh, examine multiple clustering methods and develop new methods. So why is this important? We, we were just scratching that surf uh, the surface in that first study. We, we took our favorite field, we, we reduced the size of the experiment to manageable proportions, and we tested three different algorithms. We you know, combined two of them. We ended up with a very nice pipeline, which is great. And all the work was done by one of my, you know, a new data engineer who hired, who I hired had worked only six months for me before the project closed up and she's moved on to Microsoft now. Um, so uh, what we, you know, 
One important thing, and I don't want to get too technical, but the point of uh, clustering is that you evaluate it using mathematical criteria, which basically looks for high density of edges in a cluster with the idea that clusters that have a high density uh, are better than you know clusters that don't have as high density. And what we found in this paper is that for that body of literature we looked at is that these clusters that scored really well on the mathematical criteria ten tended to be out on the edge of the field and were not central to what we were studying. And that made it just, it was like a light went off in our heads. And of course, that's why they have high edge density. They refer to each other and there's no connection with the larger body of literature we're studying. Right? And so we want to develop new clustering methods or at least find ways of tweaking the existing ones so that we can get better reference to the papers within a field as opposed to just identifying boutique uh, you know, clusters. And that's what Steve and Mariam you know, brought to us. And because uh, when you're doing the experiments and then you start evaluating your own data, that's not really a good idea. So having them you know, not really aware of everything we did, but offering critical advice on the individual clusters give us a lot of confidence. So the future for at my end will be working with my collaborators at the University of Illinois um, to develop better methods, test many other data sets, scale the methods up, improve the software so that you know we can get a higher throughput, but collaborate with experts again. And this time we have uh, beyond Steve uh, and the folks at AIBS, we've also identified other researchers who are interested in this problem from different perspectives. So one is the organization at the university. So the, 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 the local university is interested in communities with, within it. Uh, another one is uh, communities and how they relate to certain journals, uh, which communities publish in the journal, which communities participate in peer review. And there are a few other questions like, but it's all centered around you know, communities of scientists. So when we talk about uh, journal, we have to be a little careful because now we can't just pick small communities. We, you know, we may end up with much larger communities. So we'd have to tweak the clustering methods again to, to make sure that whatever we're measuring is actually useful for that purpose. What we learned from the study though was uh, really driven by a paper I read by Ulrika von Luxburg, who made uh, and who just made this point that the theoretical measures of, qual of clustering quality are not always relevant to the purpose of the clustering. So you have to redefine how good a clustering method is in terms of whether it's useful for what you need it to be. So even if the cluster, the quality of those clusters is poor, if it serves its purpose, that's a good clustering, and that's where we're headed. That's great. Maybe I could just throw in as well, you know, um, in a much more general sense. <laughs> uh, I mean, <clears throat> you know, the basic problems in peer review uh, still exist, which is really, is it fair? Is it valid? All of these things. And uh, the techniques that George has helped create uh, really will help provide insight um, into that. And I think uh, peer review largely uh, has been looked at kind of in an insular way, and it, but it doesn't really exist in a vacuum. It really does exist uh, in the whole uh, macrocosm of, of uh, uh, publications and funding and, and all these other things. And so uh, I think it's impossible to truly understand uh, what's going on and, and like guess, an to answer some of these questions about whether it's valid without uh, tools like this. And so um, 
we see a lot of potential for um, uh, future research there. Yeah. I mean, we'd love to test uh, some of the, uh, the new approaches out um, in collaboration with you when you get a pile of proposals. Say, we can, in theory at least, tell you they come from one community or we have so many, some number of clusters that, that are generated. And yeah. here are the communities that, you know, these documents belong to. Yep. That you can you can accept or reject it, and say, well, no, that doesn't make sense to us because, but uh, through this kind of iter iterative uh, evaluation, both the method will improve uh, and its utility to um, peer peer reviewers. Because I mean, uh, another problem that clustering is not going to pick up is when you you when you see a pile of papers you have uh, or proposals, you know immediately who you'd like to invite. But most of them say no. So, so now you're dealing with substitute reviewers and you have to ask, uh, how, how do you finally balance, uh, at what point do I say, I'm not going to do this review because I can't get the right reviewers? Or at what point do you say, this isn't perfect, but it's good enough. Mm. And then, then you're left with the problem of once they did the review, how well did they do? did that review work and, and that's sure. something the clustering won't help with. Right. But yeah, no, expertise matching and, and a lot of those things. So those are all um, any objective parameters we could get. Uh, and maybe identification of recruiting targets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a journal editor, you've certainly uh, piqued my interest. Uh, you know, one of the challenges that I think all journals deal with these days is um, finding reviewers who are uh, competent and willing to review manuscripts. Uh, so any help along those lines would be more than welcome, I'm sure, by our community as well. But I think that's also a great note on which to leave it. So thank you both very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, James. Yeah, you're welcome. This is a lot of fun. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.